recording in progress. Hi. Aha. Hello. Hi. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Very well. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for your time. Hello, Shumai. Welcome to The Influencers with myself, Chris Jones, for... Well, this is January. We're talking January 2022. And my influential guest this month to start this year is Kerry Danes. Now, Kerry is one of the most influential, one of the most sought after leading forensic psychologists and an author, of course. And we'll talk about that in a second. Kerry, thank you so much. I know you're very, very busy, ladies. Thank you for your time, first of all. Thank you for letting me come on. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Now, let, let's start with the term forensic psychologist. Let's go straight in there, Kerry. Explain to us what exactly is a forensic psychologist and how does it differ from a psychiatrist? OK, forgive my ignorance here. Right. OK, well, the first thing to say is I am a psychologist, not a pathologist. People always assume that I chop up dead bodies. <laughs> so the first thing to say is, A, I'm a vegetarian and B, I like my clients alive, if possible. So I am a psychologist rather than a psychiatrist. And that means that I'm not medically trained. A psychiatrist is medically trained and they tend to um, view people's problems through the lens of bi biology and chemistry. Right. And they, they like to uh, make diagnoses and prescribe medication. A psychologist can't prescribe medication and we take a more overall view of somebody and their and their problems. So uh, we use psychological models and theories and we are trained in talking therapies rather than drug therapy. Now, the forensic bit literally means it's Latin for of the courts. So I work with people, I delve into the psyches of people who have come in contact with the law for whatever reason. So they might be offenders, they may be victims, quite often at different points in their life, they've been both. So basically you, you don't walk around in a white coat? I don't walk around in a white coat. I do work with the police, but yeah. I need to clear this up. If you've watched television, you'll imagine that I trample all over crime scenes <laughs> and that I'm chasing down the bad guys. Yeah, I don't yeah, do yeah. that. I don't do that at all. Uh, but I do advise the police. And no, I don't wear a white coat. I just wear my jeans to work wherever possible. Okay, okay. Well, now, I know you said in an interview that uh, I think what initially attracted you to this particular work, forensic psychology, was was wanting to help people obviously but yeah. you've also you've also said that you have a a fascination with the dark side of life or the darker side of life if you like and and you're a bit of a nosy parker as well Gary. i am a nosy parker and you know what that does help because you've got to be nosy in this job and i like to call it curiosity rather okay. than being That's nosy fine. but trust me being curious has prompted me to ask the right questions and yeah. hopefully it's helped me save some lives, I think, uh, along the way. But yeah, I've always been interested in not morbid things, not, not necessarily lurid things. But when I was a teenager, I used to watch, um, do you remember Tales of the Unexpected? Oh, my word, you're not that old, surely. I remember that. Good grief. Yeah, do you remember, do you remember the, 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 the dance? Yeah, 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 yeah. Roald Dahl. Yeah, yeah. That's right. They were based on Roald Dahl's books. And I actually read the books. 
And some of the stories are really quite macabre. There was one about um, a landlady and the men who would go and stay at her guest house would never be seen again. They would mysteriously disappear. And um, when they were drinking tea in her room, when they first arrived at the guest house, you know, they would notice the fact that she seemed to have an awful lot of stuffed animals. She was obviously <laughs> into taxidermy. So you can imagine where this oh story went. And so I, I was always fascinated by dark, complex characters and twists and turns. And yet I was absolutely terrified of anything that had monsters in it. So, you know, Doctor Who, I was one of the ones that was behind behind the sofa. The monster of <laughs> the Black Lagoon gave me conniptions for years. But I liked, I'm going to say I liked humans, even though they were acting in strange and extreme ways. And as yeah. I grew up, I think that that interest developed and it became less of a, you know, a childish interest in, in, uh, in gory stories. Yeah, well, are you, you're, well, you've made a, you've made a career out of it, basically. I mean, the, 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 the humour in your books, I mean, you wouldn't think there would be humour in that kind of um, subject matter, but there is quite a lot of humour, but it's quite quite dark at times isn't it really do, do you do you have to have a certain kind of humor to cope with this particular job of yours yeah you absolutely do now if you ask anybody that works in emergency services so if you ask paramedics if you ask anybody that works in a and e the police etc etc you have to have a sense of humor and often it's very dark and it would appear quite inappropriate to other people but you've got to have it because otherwise you would become so heavily weighted down yeah. by the terrible things that you see that I think it could, you know, it could take you over. There's that, there's that saying, isn't there? If you look into, you know, be careful. If you look into the abyss, eventually the abyss will look into you. And it's very, very true. So there is actually a lot of humour to be found. I mean, some of the things that I've seen and heard have just been either border on the comedic or, or are just comedic. I don't just work with terrible, terrible offences. I also work with, you know, shoplifters, you name it. Hmm. I was once involved in a case where somebody kept kidnapping their neighbour's pigs and would put um, women's clothing on them. <laughs> and had to be assessed by the court. So, you know, there, there's lots of things to laugh oh, wow. at. But I think you've got to be careful. And I had to be really careful when I was writing the books because I think that if you use that humour to laugh at your clients or even worse, to laugh at victims, you're going down a very dark path yourself. Yeah. I think that we've seen we've seen some cases recently where the police, where they have said or done things under the guise of banter, that actually are not banter at all. So there's got to be a line, but um, you know you've you, you've you've equally got to find the humour, and I find the humour works really well when I'm actually with my clients as well, because everybody likes to have a laugh, and it breaks the ice, and it can break the tension. And I can honestly tell you that I've I've broken up more fights, not via the use of what we what we call control and restraint. So literally jumping on somebody, but by by humor, by cracking a joke and, and de-escalating the situation. Sure. Well, yeah. let's talk about humor quickly then, because, I, you know, there's certain uh, stories and chapters in, in your books that are obviously serious, uh, some of them crazy sad bizarre but one of the most bizarre 
and I'm sure you've been asked this before, and you've been called Donna as a result, that you were stabbed. You were stabbed by a chicken skewer. I was stabbed <laughs> by um, a young man called Nigel, who had spent many, many years in um, secure hospitals. He had learning disabilities. He didn't have what people would term as a mental illness, but he had learning disabilities, and he wasn't very good at problem solving. And so when he had problems, he would he would deal with it in a very dysfunctional way. And he set a number of fires um, as a child and uh, as an adult when he'd wanted to change his situation. But as I say, he spent many years in, in secure services and he was then in a hostel. So he was out in the community in what you might call a halfway house. And I was working in that halfway house. And I didn't know him because he's a very shy bloke, very quiet bloke, and he'd only really just arrived. And I was due to see him, but I hadn't actually met him at the point at which I stayed for dinner one night. And as fate would have it, yes, it was chicken kebab skewers. And uh, as I walked into the kitchen, Nigel was on washing up duty that, that day, that evening. And I handed him my plate to do the washing up. And then I actually thought that he punched me in the stomach. And I remember hearing the, the, the wind kind of exhale out of my lungs. I sounded like a cow mooing and it was a really strange noise and I couldn't quite work out where it came from. And then I realised it was me. And then as I looked down, I realised that I had half a chicken kebab skewer sticking out of my stomach and nobody wants to find half a sticking, you know, a chicken kebab skewer. What Was it a metal skewer or a wooden skewer? It was a metal skewer. Wow. And yeah, he he punctured me that hard that it had gone just a few inches into my stomach. Wow. So, okay. but oddly enough, it didn't hurt at the time. And I've heard that from other people. I think that the adrenaline starts starts to rush, and you could see that he was more anxious and he was in more of a state than I was. He was literally oh, hopping right. up and down. So we were in a very enclosed space. Wow. So I had to step aside so he could run past me, and I told him in a very um, school teacher like way i think you need to go to your room now Nigel. on the naughty step Nigel. you've been a naughty boy yeah a little bit but he'd he'd looked at me and he'd said you've killed me and i thought oh my goodness you know as a psychologist you wait for these 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 moments of uh you know that, that freudians would love what he actually meant was i fear i've killed you oh, right. so i said look nobody's dead Nobody's dead. You need to go to your room now. And he, and he ran off. And I, I staggered my way to the um, to the staff office where the, the girl who was there that evening was um, was fairly new. And uh, she looked at me and she said, shall I pull it out? Now, if you're a first aider, you will know that that's the last Lovely. thing that you do. So having been all very cool and calm with Nigel, it all then started to unravel. So this p poor girl got the full force of me. I sounded like the, the woman from The Exorcist. It's like, so I, I, I shouted something at her that was meant to be, no, please don't pull it out. But I, I think it sounded more like, you know, possibly with a few expletives in there. And I actually telephoned my own ambulance that night, but not a lot of harm had been done. And it was amazing how everybody was um, saying to me, oh, well, it was a completely random attack. And uh, Nigel, he must be having some sort of mental health breakdown, blah, 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 blah. And actually, what we eventually uncovered was the fact that Nigel had been targeted by men who were at his probation office. 
And they were using him because of his vulnerabilities and his learning disabilities. They were using him as what they call a spice pig. So they were using him as um, really a guinea pig to experiment on. They were manufacturing drugs and using drugs that had unknown effects. And they were they were basically trying them out on him. On him. It's not, it's not, it wasn't his fault at all, was it, really, if you think about it? Well, I mean, it was. It wasn't, it wasn't. So that wasn't. But he he didn't know how to deal with the situation. Hmm. And he'd been in hospital for so many years and he'd been on a fire fire setters awareness course, which is pretty standard. So he's probably aware of the dangers of fire, but he'd not been on a skewer awareness course. Well, no, and it says a lot yeah. about the humour of your, your colleagues, maybe, that they start calling you Donna afterwards. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that says but, a lot. I mean, he, he very much chose that course of action. But I always say that criminal behaviour is a choice. Yeah, because I'm not going to, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say anything that um, allows people to evade taking responsibility for, for their behaviour and what they do. Criminal behaviour is a choice, but some people have more choices than others. Okay. Yeah. And I don't think he felt he had a great deal of choice and he just wanted to do something that would, you know, in his experience had taught him if he did something terrible, then he would be moved to another place. And he didn't really care where that other place was, as long as it just wasn't wasn't where he was being bullied and where he was being used as a spice pig. A spice and he, cho- he chose me because I was one of the few women in the building that day. You know, I was one of the few people who would have walked into that kitchen, because I'm sure that some of the other guys, some of the residents there must have gone in before me, who would have not taken that skewer out of their own stomach and poked it in his eye, quite frankly. So I was probably the least threatening of the people in that room. So there is okay. an element of choice there. Yeah. I want to talk about that, the fact that you're a woman working in that kind of... First of all, before we go back to your childhood, do you keep sheep, Kerry? Do I keep sheep? Yeah, there no, seems to be a no. sheep sheep um, walking back and forth behind you outside. Is it is it a very a very large red-headed sheep? Well, I didn't see his head, I just saw his body. <laughs> I thought it was Right, a sheep. I think you'll find that it's got very similar hair colour to me and it's a chow chow. It's an eight stone chow chow. Oh well that would explain <laughs> would explain it. Next time he yeah. goes back and forth, I'll let it look take a look for his for right, his he's, head. He's, he's not often mistaken for a sheep, he's more often mistaken <laughs> for a lion because he's actually oh got word. quite a nice big he's, mane. He's big, whatever he is, right? Okay. He is, uh, he's had a haircut actually, so grief. he's not getting his full potential. That's Let's go back to your childhood quickly. Where are you? Where are you from? Where were you brought up, as it were? Manchester. Can you not tell from the accent? Well, I could, yes, but maybe some people could. Be. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm right on the border of Manchester and Cheshire. Right. And so my mother always says, when people ask where you're from, say you're from Cheshire. You're from Cheshire. <laughs> it sounds more posh. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, but actually, I'm quite proud to be born and bred in Manchester. So, so proud of Manchester. So, I, I mean, were, were the what were the dreams of becoming? You know, what did you want to do when you were a little girl? I mean, you obviously didn't want to be a forensic psychologist. So, what 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 was the dream, as it were? My sister tells me that when I was a child, I wanted to be famous. So I'm not really, you know, I'm not sure about that. I can't remember that. But I was in, um, I was in a very famous choir, St. Winifred's School Choir. Oh, do you remember right. that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, nauseating little girls in pink dresses and boys. And we had uh, a one-hit wonder with, well, we had two one-hit wonders, actually, with um, matched up men and matched up cats yeah. and dogs. 
and Grandma, We Love You, which Good. was a Christmas number one. Yeah, I remember that. Grandma, We Love You was, was huge. It actually knocked John Lennon off the number one spot. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, it really did. So it was number one for a long time because everybody bought it for Christmas for their grandmas. So as, as a child, and I do think this probably did have an impact, I was often recording songs not that I can carry a tune in a bucket these days and we would we would we would go and do many things so we sang with lots of celebrities from the 70s and 80s you could say that that was a good grounding in then working with uh, future sex offenders I would say but I think that <laughs> well we won't go yeah. there I know what you mean it, I know it, what you it mean. had more impact than I than I than I thought but we were singing songs and it was all about love and peace and a perfect world and I think that as I grew up yes I was interested in the in the darker side of life but eventually as I reached my teenage years I started thinking and without wanting to sound like a Miss World contestant you know how, how can I put all of my interests together but use them for some sort of greater good I've always been very idealistic Okay. So I think that that did impact. So when did, you know, I want to be a forensic psychologist come into it? I mean, you you went to university to to study this this subject, obviously. But growing up before going to uni, okay, did you think, I, okay, this um, is what I would like to do? I'd always, I'd always read a lot of true crime books, but I was at university and I was studying psychology with the intent of going into advertising. Oh, right. I'd been told, yeah, I'd okay. been told by a careers advisor that that would be a good thing to do. And I thought, oh, I bet there's lots of money in becoming a, you know, a person who writes adverts or jingles. I hadn't really thought about it. I was only 18 and you don't really know, I don't think, at that point. Or yeah. few people know what they really want to do. But then, as luck would have it, I was studying psychology, but I also had to choose some other subsidiary subjects. Now, I'm 18. This is fresh as we. All of the good-looking boys were in the law class. Oh, no, no. You, you're, being, you're being too shallow now, Kerry, surely. No, well, come on. I'm 18. I always <laughs> say that my career choices were driven by hormones and cheap cider. So <laughs> <laughs> there was one particular boy called Stephen P. English, and he was in the law class, and I desperately wanted to talk to Stephen P. English. I never actually plucked up the courage. So in three years at university, I never managed to do it. But I signed up for the law subsidiaries. I gazed at the back of the, you know, his beautiful head in lectures for a while. And then I started to get interested in the law. And I forgot about him so much and really got interested in the law. So how do you put law and psychology together? Well, this was the early 90s. And so Cracker had been a very popular TV series. Oh, yeah. I want to say I had never watched an episode of Cracker. That was not what did it for me. But I started to think about forensic psychology. It was one of those sexy subjects. And so, yeah, I thought, well, I'm going to be a forensic psychologist. And somebody said to me, that's no career for a girl. Oh, no, then. Well, I want to talk to you about that in a second. But, yeah. um, the, or the sheep is barking, look. <laughs> it's, it's not... It's, not the sheep that's barking it's, it's a much smaller one. dog i'm going to show him to you this is captain fur potato my rescue dog captain fur potato oh, ex excellent recall as you can tell <laughs> oh yeah he's very well disciplined gary i can see he's, he's barking at the sheep but i want to show no, him that's... to you uh come here you know this is it isn't oh, it he's, he's embarrassing me he's, yeah, he's not for it but he'll come over in a while it's because the cameras are on him that's why isn't it it's the lights and the cameras he's obviously quite nervous so well, so I, I need to get him, otherwise he's going to bark the house down. Oh, go on then, yeah. go on then. Right, come here, give the authority in my voice. <laughs> 
Yes, go to your room. <laughs> I know. So uh, after you graduated, I, I know you launched your your career, I suppose, uh, as a uh, psychologist in well, amongst other things, maximum security prisons. Now, to to you know a normal person like myself, uh, that sounds scary as hell. Was that a baptism of fire? Was that was that scary for you? Yes, well, it was a baptism of fire for all of the reasons that I didn't expect. I was very very excited. It's very difficult to um, get a foot on the ladder of forensic psychology. I always say it's like the Hunger Games because it's, it's just such a difficult area to crack into. Although I will say that it's 85% women who oh, go into this. Really? Yeah, it is. It's, 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 it's very uh, female orientated. I think that women are socialised to think more about other people and how other people work. And it's seen as a caring and nurturing profession, even though it can actually traditionally be quite cold. But yes, it's 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 predominantly women that go into it. So I had to get a foot in the door. So I got a voluntary position doing research in um, in Wakefield Prison, which the the uh, media tend to call Monster Mansion. Monster Mansion because there's um, a high proportion of sex offenders and, uh, you know, very, very serious offenders. It's a category A prison it's known for having one of the toughest regimes and we do have uh, you know we do have a very tough regime in in the uh, in the uk well okay then but so in that case then sorry to interrupt you in that case you were you were walking through this maximum security prison with all these sex offenders you're a woman you're young what, what was it like scary it, it it just sounds like a scary place basically devoid of of hope, devoid of happiness, devoid of anything, really. And you, well, you yeah, walking it, through it, with your red hair it, and thinking, what the hell? Yeah, you know, in, and in the, it was 1996. So, um, yes, it was all of those things at that time. I can't comment on what it might be like now. But the thing was, I was so desperate to be a forensic psychologist. I always say, because it was June 1996 and the Spice Girls were number one. Oh. And I really, really, really wanted to be a forensic uh-huh. psychologist. And so I wasn't really thinking about anything else apart from the fact that I was overjoyed to be there. Okay. But I had very, very little money. I was doing this on my uh, income support. There was £36 a week and then an extra tenner because I'd been on something called employment training. You know, so I'd got myself a cheap suit from <laughs> CNA. Remember CNA? Yeah, CNA, and, yeah. Uh, you know, and, I, and I was happy to be there. But yes, it was intimidating but I didn't have a great deal of trouble from the inmates because it was quite a settled prison because the regime was so harsh. I had a lot of trouble from the prison officers because women had only been allowed in the prison for a matter of months before I'd arrived there. So they'd only just got female prison officers. And it was a macho, I would say misogynist, actually, sure. environment. There were a lot of young guys and when they see, you know, a 21-year-old woman in a suit. Yeah, I can well imagine. Yeah. I can so well imagine, yeah. Yeah, so within, within probably half an hour of my having been there, the prison officers were running a book on who would sleep with me. God. And I was asked out on a date by the senior officer on Sea Wing. Sea Wing was where all the young books were, and it really was a horrible, horrible wing. It really was dreadful. Uh, full of, you know, lots of abusive behaviours were going on. 
yeah, later on, he was convicted of a number of rapes and kidnapped. And did, so you, th- did you go out on a date with him? Did I go out on a date with him? No, no, no I didn't go no, out on no, a date with no. him. Put it this way, he was not my type. And the fact that he was wearing a wedding ring as well. All right. Uh, yeah, it was a pretty clear indication. Apparently, he'd only been married for a few months. Oh, for goodness sake. But he was convicted of raping um, a female colleague, various other women. And on his way home from work, while he was in his prison officer's uniform, He'd actually been abducting and sexually assaulting um, girls as young as 12 using his warrant card to get them into the car. Oh, well, that strikes a, a strikes a note recently, isn't it, with what's been happening with Oh, my goodness, yes. Sir. Everard, I mean, that, yeah. that was the first thing that I thought about when the, when the Sarah Everard case broke, really, and we realised that it was a serving police officer. But one of the lessons that I learned very, very early on is that I had gone into the prison thinking there are good guys and there are bad guys. And it's, you know, it's very clear who's who because the bad guys will look bad. And in this particular instance, they're going to be wearing, you know, prison issue sweats. And the good guys are the guys in uniform. They're the ones that we can trust. They're the ones who are tasked with our safety. So... I realised that actually crime, it happens to people, it's committed by people in our communities. And this whole them and us attitude that we have is is the wrong attitude because there really is no them and us, it's just us. That's what I always say now. I mean, it says a lot about your strength of character then, really, that, that, that you didn't give up. Were there times where you thought, what the hell am I doing here? Why am I, do- why am I doing this job? Did you, did you nearly give up? Oh, I mean, oh, gosh, there's lots of times when you think to yourself, what, you know, what am I doing here? I could, I could be doing something that's so much easier, with so much less pressure. I'd be able to sleep better at night. You know, I, get me somewhere where I don't have to make important decisions <laughs> or, or contribute to important decisions that literally might be uh, life or death to somebody but it's just such a it's an endlessly fascinating area it can be really very rewarding as well and it's something that I'm passionate about and I think that you know cut me open I'm like a stick of rock and I think that psychology runs through me to be (laughs) honest and I don't think I could be anything else anymore and even though my career has taken various different twists and turns, yeah. I, th- I think that, yeah, oh, sorry, my dog is locking my I was going to say, is the dog licking the microphone on your, on your computer or something? Never work with animals uh, and children, that's what they him. say. I'm going to be very professional this morning. There you go. I'm going to put him back on the floor and hope that he'll be a bit quieter. Uh, yeah. I... He is very licky. Right. Yeah, it's, it's an area that I think that if I wasn't working in this area, then I'd probably be doing something voluntarily in this area. OK, but but as you say, you, you sort of branched off in a way. You've, you've done a TV presenting work. And of course, you're now an author, for goodness sake. We tell Sunday oh, Times best-selling author. I mean, that's, that's major. So is writing these two books of yours, Dark Side of the Mind was the first one, wasn't it? And Wild Eyes Buried. Um, is that a good way of getting things off your chest, if you like? Is writing cathartic to you? Oh, my goodness. The first book, I, I literally lost, lost hair writing the first book because I had a very short period of time in which to write it. But also, I'm, you know, I don't consider myself an author. I'm a psychologist and I'm used to writing court reports, but not books. And so I didn't realise when I sat down to, re, uh, to write it just how, just how cathartic it would be. Yeah. Because I'm going to be honest, I cried an awful lot writing my first book, The Dark Side of the Mind. Really? You know, I went back and I talked about things in my past that I'd really not 
spoken about before and were difficult to talk about. And also it forced me to take a really good look at my profession. And I didn't like what I saw. And that had been coming on for a long time. And that is actually the reason why I had decided to take a step back from working in hospitals and prisons, because I'd realized just how ineffective they were. And I was part of a system that isn't fit for purpose and does a great deal of harm, creates victims, I believe. So writing the first book was was difficult. It really was difficult. And there were moments when I thought, oh, God, you know, what, what have I spent? What have I spent my career doing? But then there are also uplifting moments that I remembered as well. And so it was also life affirming. And this is it about the, the profession of a forensic psychologist. It is in equal measure horrendous and phenomenal. So it's got real highs and real lows, and you really pray sometimes just for the plateau, you know, you, for your own mental stability. You just well, pray for not too much to happen. But it, it, it does, it's got highs and lows, and therefore, of course, it's perfect for a book. Yeah. But it, it actually reignited my passion for psychology, I think. It just made me think that I want to do this in a different way, and I want to talk about forensic psychology not in the way that you see it on television and in crime dramas. I want to talk about it in a very real way so that people actually understand what goes on in these environments. Okay, uh, that leads me nicely on to the next question then, really. Uh, and by the way, I hope you don't lose your hair because you've got amazing head of hair. Oh, well, I lost a oh, bit of it. God. I lost a bit of it. So I know, so it's, it's, it's coming back. It's but amazing yeah. head of hair, absolutely. <laughs> so um, in, in, in the books, you, you write a lot, as you just said, about the, the, the state of the system, if you like, with regard to you know yeah. uh, mental health especially and uh, you know violence in the, towards women and the UK in general and the attitudes and traditions and ways of treatment and that kind of thing. I, I, I get the feeling that it's a constant battle. Are you trying to change things that taking uh, too men well too much to change is it is it difficult is it a constant battle to keep on knocking at people's doors and saying no, let's do this why don't you try this let's do something different in the uk it is it really is it's it feels overwhelming at times it really really does uh certainly when i'm talking about violence towards women and girls we know so much more than we did say 10 years ago and yet the levels of violence against women and girls isn't even just staying the same. It's actually slightly rising. Yeah. And so you think, gosh, all of this accumulation of knowledge, and yet we don't act upon it. And, um, you know, working in the prison service, you see over and over again people who have gone into prison and they've been re-traumatised when they've already had trauma in their lives. They've been uh, made into better criminals. And you just think, you know, what what is this about? And they come out resentful, really resentful of people and authority. Uh, and you think, why? Why is this? Why do we still have this incredibly punitive regime that we know doesn't work? The majority of people that go into prison, who only go in for short short periods then come out and reoffend within within two years yeah the fact that you just said that they're going to i mean come out as better criminals is mind-blowing is mind-blowing because I, well, I, 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 mean... I tell you something that was really a shock to the system probably not as much of a shock as it should have been but in uh 2017-18 a study was very very quietly downloaded onto the ministry of justice website and it showed that the sex offender treatment programme 
So the flagship offending behaviour programme in the UK, literally millions of pounds has been pumped into this programme. And it, um, as, as the name would suggest, it targets sexual offending behaviour or it's meant to. So the most serious type of crime. It showed that men who had gone through that, that treatment programme, and it's a long and involved treatment programme, came out of the programme not less likely to reoffend, but slightly more likely to reoffend. And actually, the Ministry of Justice had known this for many, many years. Many people had been blowing the whistle, but they'd actually sat on the results of this study for, for numerous years. If you are a sex offender and you've been through the sex offender treatment program, you are more likely to get parole. So that's why people do it. And yet it makes them slightly more likely to reoffend. So it creates victims. That is bonkers, isn't it? Absolutely. Isn't it? It's absolutely bonkers. But not an awful lot of a fanfare was made about this research, surprisingly enough. Not a lot of people know about it. On funnily enough, the Daily Mail, yeah, the last newspaper that I would read, but the Daily Mail were the only ones to report on it. Oh. So a reporter called David Rose, who is actually a very, very good investigative reporter, picks up on it. But it's it's it should be a national scandal, but it's not. And yet our politicians still always, uh, you know, they, they vie with each other, don't they, to, to prove who can be the toughest on crime, who can bring in the most punitive measures. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, always a, a new minister for justice or whatever. Who's oh, say, God, we've you know, had how many over yeah, the last few I years? Know, yeah, constantly, yeah. because we're in absolute chaos and mayhem. And yet the, the, the treatment programmes that we plough our money into don't work. And actually... The, the whole concept of prisons in the UK don't work because they're overcrowded, they're understaffed, morale is incredibly low. There's a lot of uh, bullying behaviours from inmates to other inmates, but also sometimes from prison officers to inmates. There's an awful lot of violence and self-harm. There's a lot of violence towards staff. These prisons really are, you know, I call them just warehouses of misery. But, but yeah, it's that exactly what it sounds like, as if things haven't yeah. changed since the old workhouses regime, you know, back in the day. But... Well, you know, and as much as we accumulate knowledge and we know what works, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to become policy. And that's what I find so frustrating. And the reason why it doesn't become policy is because either politicians don't really care about issues until people really start to stand up and shout about them. And then they will do something that looks good, that looks like they're doing something, but actually creates very little change. Or they will continue to campaign on this. Look, we're really tough. We're bringing in tougher sentences. We're going to get more and more people in prison. We're going to build more prisons. Yeah. And we're going to be really, really uh, tough on people who go into prison. And people vote for that because I think there's, just, there's that natural, there's that natural belief, isn't there, in, uh, you know, natural justice. Well, somebody's done something terrible. Therefore, we need to be terrible to them. And they don't actually look at the outcomes of that. They don't look at the consequences of that. I always say, what do you want? Do you want revenge? And obviously there's got to be a punitive element, mm. but being sent to prison itself is punitive. Mm. Or do you want to actually create a world where there are less victims? Because if you want to do that, 
we've actually got to think differently. And if you look at countries that have got very low um, reoffending rates, their prisons operate in a much a much different way that some people might look at and say, well, that's that's soft. That's being soft. You know, offering therapy for trauma. That's being soft. Okay. Having you know, having prison officers who actually call the inmates by their names, treat them with respect and dignity, having a higher number of better trained officers, which is expensive, spending time with the inmates and actually looking at things that they can do in terms of uh, maintaining links with their family, establishing employment when they come out of prison. All of this is seen as soft, but this supposedly soft regime works so what is it that you want people that's what i always ask yeah and it sounds then in that case that it's a particularly british problem isn't it really compared to other countries maybe and well i don't know british and and american and i think you know other countries are, are, are even worse i think we sit kind of right in the middle of of countries that don't really know what to do with their with their offenders yeah, I, I do a lot of work for uh, domestic uh, violence towards women uh, charities, and um, I'm sure you, you're aware of uh, Professor Jane Mankton Smith and uh, Rachel Williams, and uh, I do a lot of people have, uh, work for them. And, and there has been obviously a rise, as you rightly say, in men's violence towards women, which is is mind boggling, really. And I know there's yeah. so many people who do amazing amount of work and a good friend of mine her ex-husband is now in jail because of coercive control so you know it's at least it's in the news at least people are talking about it at least people are aware where i don't think yes yeah i think small changes where you've talked about um jane monkton smith rachel williams i was i was sitting with the fantastic women of the homicide timeline crew Uh on friday yeah a fantastic bunch of women so it's interesting isn't it it's, it's women trying to tackle men's violence towards women and girls and we really we need more men we need more men well, exactly that's that's the problem that's what gets me anyway that's that's another subject let's let's lighten it up a bit before we continue if we yeah. may i'm gonna spring something on you now i'm gonna give you 10 quick fire questions all right go on and you can you can elaborate if you'd like uh, so we'll put the clock on now. So, are you a sporty person? So let, let me ask you first. Not about... remotely. Not remotely. Oh, God. So, in which case, then, if you really had to choose, rugby or football? Uh, rugby, without a doubt, because I'm quite partial to a rugby player's physique. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Not that you're shallow or anything, Kerry. But... Not that I'm shallow. Yeah. Okay. Um, are you a half? full kind of person or glass half empty uh it depends what day of the month or week you ask me that but i would say probably half full oh wow okay good okay what is your greatest weakness would you say my greatest weakness is crisps uh chocolate and generally food that's bad for me okay okay uh, as, as with many 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 people i'm sure so that's not too bad no, is it? No, i don't no, have no. many vices to be honest okay uh, well, what about the alcohol then? Um, white wine or red wine? Uh, white wine. Do white you... wine, but I don't drink a lot of alcohol because I've got something called many years disease, okay. which makes me dizzy. Yeah, not a lot of people realise I'm deaf and I have something called many years disease, so my deafness stems from that. Wow. And yeah, I know people don't realise. Yeah, so drinking and dizziness aren't a great partner, but I'm, I'm, I'm more partial to a pina colada on holiday so i'd say cocktails but white wine yeah white wine okay uh walking in the mountains or walking on a nice secluded beach somewhere 
Oh gosh, well I spend more time on mountains or maybe not mountains but hills because I do a lot of dog walking and I love that, that's my mindfulness therapy. But uh, if I had a choice, oh put me on a beach, please send me to a beach. Oh really? Well you can come down here, we live on a beach, it's literally oh, 10 gosh, yards yeah. from my house. <laughs> oh no, I, I, yeah that's my, that's my dream at the moment, to be on a nice warm beach. I've not been on holiday, as many of us haven't yeah. for such a long time. Tell yeah. me about it, tell me about it. Are you a morning person or a night person? Uh, I'm a middle of the day person. <laughs> right, okay. Okay. Yeah. Tea or coffee? Uh, tea, plenty of it. Yorkshire tea, copious amounts of Yorkshire tea. Yorkshire yeah. Tea, yeah. And uh, obvious question, I suppose, um, considering we've got the sheep behind you: dogs or cats? Uh, well, but I love both. I love both, but I've got dogs. I've, oh. I've had both in my life. I love animals of all of all descriptions. I'd have literally any kind of animal you could. You yeah, could it comes across in your books that you like animals as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, when was the last time? Well, this is a bit of a personal question. I apologise. When was the last time you cried? Oh gosh, when was the last time I cried? The last time I cried was actually um, I'd been sent a book by Marie McCourt who was a woman who campaigned for Helen's Law and her daughter was was killed by a man who has never revealed the whereabouts of her body. And it made me think of other cases where, where bodies have not been retrieved. So I was thinking about the Susie Lamplew case because I'm an, an ambassador for the Susie Lamplew Trust. And I was thinking about the April Jones case, which is a case that always gets to me. Yep. And whenever I think about April Jones, I, I cry. And so I was I was just thinking about the, you know, the the devastation that families go through yeah. when they're not able to. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, I'm very yeah. familiar with the April Jones case because obviously it was in mid Wales, not, not far from yeah. where I live. Um, okay, and the final question then, who was your first childhood crush? My first, well, very first childhood crush was Morton Harkett from Aha, oh, because yeah. my sister my sister had um, a poster of him on, on her wall, because she had all, you know, she had Duran Duran and all of them, and I was never really interested. But I must admit, I did used to look at Morton Harkett and think, oh, you know, he's rather lovely. So I'd say that it was him. Yeah, he's a good-looking lad, Fedus, too. I mean, you know, yeah. And, of course, there's always Stephen P. English, Kerry. Well, there is always Stephen P. English. So the only name in my book that I haven't changed in the hope that he will call me, but I don't <laughs> think that... And, you know, I think that some things are, are best left to the past, aren't they? So Absolutely. I think it, it's better just to keep that as, as, a, as a dream. <laughs> We talked earlier on uh, the fact that you do consult for the police, you, you know, you're on major projects, if you like, of, or, or yep. court cases and obviously um, court investigations. But you've also sort of diverted into the world of television and started presenting. Now, do, do, you, feel, do you feel, how the hell did I get here? Or <laughs> Often, often. I really do. I really do. Um, I was on the set of Casualty in August, believe it or not. I was doing some consulting for casualty wow. and I was in the prosthetics room of casualty, which you can imagine looks like the, uh, you know, it looks like a serial killer killer's pantry because there's all kinds of prosthetic arms and legs and, and bits and pieces. So it's quite gory, but quite nice as well to be there. Yeah. And I was just, I was just thinking to myself, how on earth, how on earth did this, did this happen? And I often have these moments of life is just so, so very, surreal 
Yeah. I was also, because of COVID, I've been doing uh, interviews with people in, in, uh, in uh, prison via video link rather than as I would do face to face. So it's very strange because I'm interviewing people in a prison cell, but as I'm talking to you, they can also see the dogs in the background. So it's, it's really quite strange. You would never have, you know, it's kind of like opening up a portal to a, you know, your private life, even though it's just, you know, it's, it's just one little background. And, and I talk about my dogs all the time. So I had a very surreal moment when I was talking to somebody who is billed as one of the most violent offenders in Britain. I'm not going to say who he is, but that's that's what he is billed as. And I don't know that I would agree with that. And I was showing him my my Pekingese dog. And I was waving my Pekingese dog's paw at him and he was going, hello, and talking in baby language to him. And I'm thinking, well, there you go. Even the hardest men crumble at the sight of my dog. So, but, but this is it. There's all of these kind of strange, strange moments. And I really wanted to put them into my book so that people could see that people are more than just the sum of their offences. Yeah, and oh, see, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and see, see people as you know in as whole people really with whole stories i, I think, yeah, the, I think the way you go about it is is quite it's quite uplifting it's positive isn't it but i mean you you, the, you know you you are doing this work and consulting and tv and 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 uh, yeah. being an author do, do you feel a sense of responsibility you talked a little on that there are quite a few women uh, coming into this industry do, do you feel quite a bit of pressure maybe because you are a woman that uh, you know to try and encourage young girls to go into this kind of uh, no I don't feel pressure as a woman because I, I understand that most forensic psychologists are are women um, I'm always very happy when a woman writes to me and says I didn't think that that profession was open to me but now I've read your book and I realized that it is right. so I'm always okay. very happy when when women say you know wow you've you've inspired me that's that's fantastic. What I feel a pressure to do is cut out what I call the pseudo intellectual bullshit, which surrounds forensic psychology. So I want to write about the real world of forensic psychology because there's so much that I think that people see in in crime drama, true crime documentaries and also in newspaper headlines that is simply not the truth. So I want people to read my books and actually start to question the world around them a little bit more. And by that, you know, what what I mean is, obviously there's the the myths about the forensic psychologist that we can walk into a room and, you know, we we understand the relationship that somebody's had with their mother or what colour underwear they're wearing, et cetera, et cetera. You know, as if we're psychic rather than psychologists. But also when you read um, headlines, crime headlines, uh, and when you read accounts of crime or look at them on TV, it reinforces certain stereotypes, which I think are really damaging. We've got one is one of the lowest um, conviction rates for rape in this country. It really is startling. Less than 0.3% of all reported rapes actually result in a conviction. And dare I ask why? Well, this is it. There are lots of reasons why, but some of the reasons why are to do with how people think about rape. They think that rape happens in a dark alley, that you are raped by a stranger, 
and that you can't be raped if you are a sexually active woman or if you dress provocatively. So all of these, you know, all of these rape myths and, and stereotypes. And when you get men in front of a jury who actually don't look the creepy weirdo types and the rape happened in the woman's own home and maybe they'd been on dates beforehand, you know, they knew each other. They go, well, this doesn't fit my internal picture of a rape. And they're more likely to acquit or they believe things like, oh, well, um, if a woman doesn't fight, then that means that it can't be rape because surely any woman would fight off a rapist yeah, yeah. because that's what you see on TV. When actually research shows that 70 percent of rape victims freeze out of terror. So there are real world consequences to the things that we see and the stories that we tell. So I want to tell stories that are real stories. And actually, I think that they're very fair to both victims and offenders, because what we don't realise is that when we stereotype offenders and we think of them as monsters and not like us and not parts of our community, we also stereotype victims as well. Yeah, OK, I, I, I can see what you, I know exactly what you mean. I have three daughters, grown up daughters myself. And, you know, as a father, I, I'm always terrified of, what, of what's going to happen to them. And, and you said earlier on about women sort of coming into the industry. That can only be a good thing, really, can't it, really? It, do you know what? Women are making such huge strides in... In, in the area of violence, um, you know, violence not to, just towards women and girls, but male violence towards other men as well. Yeah. But we need to have men to join the conversation. We need to have men to be good role models and talk about things. And, you know, what I think we really need is we need the men who are in charge, because it is still largely men who are in charge, to actually listen to, to, the, to the research and listen to experts. I know that we're we're meant to be sick of experts at the moment. But you mentioned Jane Monkton Smith. Jane Monkton Smith has produced a homicide timeline that, if used correctly, can really show who is at, at risk of killing another human being. Yeah? A man who is at risk of killing their partner or ex or, or another woman. And yet, it's taking such a long time for these messages to filter yeah. through. All right. Um, there's so much more we can talk about. But I want to ask you quickly, if I may, about uh, maybe not the next stage, if you like, but TV work movies. Now, I texted you, uh, I think, when yeah. I read What Lies Buried, because I read the chapter called Pork and Prejudice. There we are, What Lies Buried. Yes. Oh, my God. Just just that chapter alone is a movie so have you ever been have you ever been approached to to write a script maybe or a, mo a movie about your life for goodness sake uh not about my life but hot off the press i am now currently in talks about making the books into a television series oh, absolutely and they will they will they will deviate from the books of course and they won't be me but a tv series about a female forensic psychologist that isn't based on all the usual stereotypes and tropes. So fingers crossed that will be happening. Absolutely. But I would love I would love to get more into that because I think that what we've got to change is the culture. Yeah. We've got to change the culture. And the, the, the way that we do that is through uh, through the media, I think. And this is why I've uh, I've gone into television. And it's not something that I ever saw myself doing. 
The first time I was ever put in front of a camera, I had a panic attack and never thought that I would do it again. But I think that there's an opportunity really to educate people through stealth. So whilst they are being entertained and the true crime genre has just gone absolutely off the Richter scale. Yeah. And too often, I think that it glamorizes violence and it turns turns offenders into kind of pop culture celebrities in a way. Yeah. You know, you only got to look at Ted Bundy for that. Oh, yeah. So if I can make a tiny little bit of a difference, which I feel that I do do, um, I'm very, very lucky. The TV series that I do for Discovery, Faking It, Tears of the Crime, which is all about lying and deception, and it's based on fantastic, cutting-edge lie detection uh, science. But they do let me have a little rant every now and again, and they do let me you know, feel free to to talk about the things that annoy me about cases and how we perceive cases and actually what the truth of uh, matters are. Sure. So, yeah, I, I feel, yeah. I don't know whether it's just a drop in, a, in a, a vast ocean that will get lost or or not, but I think that I've got to try. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, well, so basically watch this space. I can see yeah. in a movie Julianne Moore or, or <laughs> Susan Sarandon or someone, you know, so, so anyway, moving on. <laughs> so, so in which case then TV, but um, how do you actually switch off? Do you switch off? Do you find it hard to switch off? I, I do sometimes find it hard to switch off, but people, it's interesting what I get on Twitter. You know, everybody says to me, well, have you watched this crime documentary? And are you familiar with this case and that case? So I'm literally an encyclopedic knowledge of every crime that's ever been committed anywhere in the world. And if I was, I think that I would I would just never sleep, would I? So for me, switching off is I love to watch what people might consider trash television. Uh, so, okay. you know, the kind of you know, the kind of things where you don't have to actually employ a brain cell. Okay. Watch it. Well, funny enough, right. one of the questions on the quick fire was going to be, Kerry, documentaries or trash TV? And you would have answered trash TV probably, well, wouldn't you? Well, do you know what? I would have been really torn because I do love a good documentary, but there are good documentaries. And then there are documentaries that made me want to throw my shoes at the television because I see so much as I, you know, I see so many people who portray themselves as experts and have probably never spoken to a victim nor an offender in their life. And they come they come out with such such nonsense, but it's what, you know, it's what the media wants of them. Yeah. And um, and I refuse to do that. I think I'd rather end up on the cutting room floor now than portray something that isn't real. And actually, I think that when you do talk the truth, it's more fascinating. So surprisingly enough, I'm not ending up on the cutting room floor. But yeah, so a good documentary, I absolutely love. A good true crime documentary, a good series, you know, a good Netflix series. But love you also, it. But you also switch off with a bit of Love Island as well, do you? But, oh, but Love Island, all of that kind of nonsense. And I absolutely love um, Say Yes to the Dress. I just want to look at wedding dresses. <laughs> I know, and people don't, don't yeah, it's ridiculous, I don't know what that says about my psyche, I really don't know, but I just like to look at a nice dress, I, and I like to go walk my dogs, so that's how I, that's yeah, how I that's switch, how I, switch. Really. I don't think anybody would blame you at all to watch a little bit of Love Island after what you do day by day by you, day. You've, you've got to have balance in yeah, your life, you've really got to strive for balance in your life, and I think that, you know, for all of the serious stuff that I do and get involved with, stuff that that really does keep me awake at night 
I've got to balance that with, you know, the silliness and the trivialness and the ludicrous yeah. of life as well. Absolutely. That's what I oh, well, it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you, Kerry. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. I know you're very, very busy and you're obviously a very influential lady, but you're obviously absolutely amazing. I think I love the reading your books. I love reading about your stories, but uh, you are trying to change things bit by bit in your own way uh, yeah. and uh, good luck with the uh, well the, the TV series I, I can't wait to see that Fingers crossed. are there yeah. any any more any more books in the pipeline um, and that kind of thing well I have just signed a contract for another two books but okay. I'm going to give myself a little bit of time to write them so don't expect anything too soon right. okay. um, um, but we've got a brand new series we're on the sixth series of faking it tears of a crime on discovery. Okay. Uh, you see um, specials on Discovery Plus, which is a streaming channel, and you can also catch me on Quest Red. But I've got a few documentaries coming up on uh, one on Channel Four to do with the Moors murders, and various different things in the pipeline. So all I can say is watch watch this space. Absolutely. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, and I'm going to continue to do what i do really oh yeah please don't stop doing what you do oh my god that's that yeah. definitely don't. well i'm i'm absolutely honored to have you on the podcast thank you so so much it's so nice to meet you even though it's a virtual before leaving you go um, i'm going to give you one more question i'm going to put you on a desert island for about two weeks just yeah. you but what is the one thing you insist on taking with you to make life a bit more bearable um, I'd have to take my dog with me. I'd have I to knew take... it. I knew you'd say that. Would you take both I, I, of them? I, two, two weeks on a desert island without Captain Fur Potato, but you'd have to have a good haircut first. But I'm assuming that I can take dog food. <laughs> you can take your dog and dog food. So, but what yeah. about the sheep? What happens to the sheep living? Um, the sheep, he's, he's great. I don't think he'd manage very well on a desert island. He's got a little bit too much fur for that, and he's old now, so he's, he's nine. He'll, he'll go to his grandma's and be fine. 